This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is David Rutledge, metaphorically putting on my sturdy boots and heading outdoors for this week's edition of The Philosopher's Zone. Welcome to the program. Friedrich Nietzsche once cautioned us to sit as little as possible. Do not believe any idea, he said, that was not born in the open air and of free movement. Sitting still is the real sin against the Holy Spirit. And those words have been taken to heart by today's guest. All of the philosophers that I'm drawn to, in fact, uh, have that position. So Nietzsche's not alone in that position. Um, Both men and women philosophers have said that uh, all great ideas come through walking. So Rousseau said that his out of doors was his study. Henry David Thoreau wrote Walking in 1852 um, in the Esterbrook Wood, his most famous essay. And Nietzsche, as you said, uh, believed that you shouldn't trust any idea that doesn't come to you while you're on your feet. So I think that, I mean, um, thinking on one's feet, reaching a conclusion, these are not simply metaphors. They're actually ways that we come to ideas. His name is John Cagg. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Massachusetts Lowell, and he's the author of a book that I really enjoyed over my summer holiday. The book is titled Hiking with Nietzsche. It combines two of my favourite things, hiking and Nietzsche, and it's a wonderful mix of philosophy and personal memoir. Reading it, you very quickly discover that John Cagg is one of those people, like Nietzsche, for whom philosophy isn't just an intellectual diversion or a job. He really puts it all on the line. Hiking with Nietzsche is the story of two journeys to the village of Sils Maria in the mountains of Switzerland, a place where Nietzsche himself had spent a good deal of his later life. John Cagg went there first as a solitary 19-year-old and then some years later at age 37 with his wife and young child. Two very different journeys, two very different experiences, and between them they throw up some fascinating insights into not just the work of Nietzsche, but also what can happen when you decide to walk the Nietzschean walk. When I was 19, I mean, I was brought up in central Pennsylvania, so um, sort of rural, very conservative, brought up in a Lutheran family, very much like Nietzsche's, actually. And when I started reading Nietzsche in college, and he said, God is dead, Uh, we have killed him, you and I, he wasn't rejoicing over this, but he was also saying that perhaps if God is dead, we, individuals, can really live apart from tradition or convention. And that was very liberating for me. And I was drawn to Nietzsche, um, and I ended up writing an honors thesis on his notion of genius, insanity, and the will to power. And at the end of my junior year, a professor handed me an envelope, and in that envelope was $3,000. And he said, you've never been outside of central Pennsylvania, uh, much less outside of the country. Maybe you should go, quote, hiking with Nietzsche. And so that's what I did. Uh, so between my 19th and right before my 20th birthday, he said, I've set this up for you. You're going to stay at the Nietzsche house. The Nietzsche house was where Frederick Nietzsche summered in 1880, but then again between 1881 and 1886. It's in Sils Maria on the Italian border. And this Nietzsche house is now a museum. My professor had contacted the curator of the museum and uh, convinced him to let me stay there. Uh, So that's what I did for nine weeks, hiking behind Friedrich Nietzsche. And it was really the opportunity to exercise my freedom or my individual will um, in ways that I hadn't before. 
And what happened? How did it pan out? Well, Nietzsche says famously, he says, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And during that summer, when I was 19, I took that as a direction to go as hard physically as I possibly could. Um, I hadn't done very much hiking before that. I didn't have very much equipment, but I summited several of the peaks around Nietzsche's house, Corvach at 11,300 feet, for example, and scared myself pretty badly, to be frank, um, and got lost. One night I tried to cut, not through a trail, but over Piz Plata, which is a mountain at 11,000 feet, and um, got badly lost. I would not advise this. But Nietzsche suggests that we must have the courage for the forbidden. And I took that as an indication, quite literally, to do things that were forbidden during that summer. And of course, the itch stayed with you. You went back a second time, some 17 years later. What had happened in your life during that 17 years? Because you were a very different person and under very different circumstances when you went back that second time, weren't you? That's right. I mean, Nietzsche gives us is sort of presents a challenge for us. He calls this the eternal return, and it's a thought experiment. Um, he says, imagine that a demon comes to you in your loneliest of lonelies and says to you that you must relive this moment, this very moment, not once or twice or a hundred or a thousand times, but an infinite number of times. And would that idea crush you or would it elevate your soul? And I pose this to my students, and my students, like I did when I was 19, think that the only way of answering the eternal return is through the will to power. This idea that what we find most meaningful as human beings is in the powerful exercising of our volitions. And that's what I tried to do when I was 19, and it almost killed me. But as you get into middle age, or as you approach middle age, I think you have the realization that life consists not in moments of the will to power, but in moments when you exercise volition in negative ways or destructive ways where you hurt yourself or hurt others. And you have to come to terms with that. And the eternal return remains. Can you will those moments, the moments that you feel weak or the moments where you feel humiliated or despised? Can you will those again infinitely? And I think that was the task of the second trip. So Nietzsche has a way through this, and I think it's particularly useful. He calls it the amor fati, and maybe we can talk about that a bit more. Well, it's interesting that you um, you talk about this as something that comes to you as you approach middle age, because I, I think Nietzsche is often seen as somebody that you're supposed to grow out of as you as you mature, <laughs> a little bit like certain poetry or, I don't know, listening to the doors or something. But I, I heard you in an interview a while back saying that there are Nietzschean insights that are very well suited to people approaching middle age, and the amor fati is, is one of these then. That's right. And in fact, Nietzsche's Ubermensch, the overman, this heroic ideal of radical individualism or radical freedom, it resonates so closely with 19-year-olds that it's almost natural for them to be drawn to Nietzsche. But what I think as you approach 30 and 40 years old, we forget that life does consist in the ability to do something radically otherwise. And so Nietzsche's Ubermensch is the promise the hope 
that we can be otherwise. And I think that that, while not natural in our 30s and 40s, is very necessary. Because when I was 19, I had no idea how boring life was going to be or stultifying it could be. And I think that Nietzsche, into our 40s and 50s, says, you can still do otherwise. Now, the amor fati is Nietzsche's idea of the love of fate. And I think that this also is a way of thinking through a sort of mature adulthood. Um, the love of faith says that you must love not only those moments that you exercise the will to power in creative ways, but you must love those moments where you are most humiliated, when you are the sickest, when you are really downtrodden. And I think that that sort of power, that sort of acceptance and love of fate, as I approach my 40s, it's been very useful to think through. It's interesting that we're talking about the sick moments, the humiliating moments, the downtrodden moments in the context of your your second trip back to Sils Maria with your, your, your wife and, and young daughter. It was a difficult time in, in some respects, wasn't it? Although a different order of difficulty from the first time you went. I think you can be more honest about that. I think it was absolutely brutal. I think that um, as you grow older and you become um, a parent and a partner or a husband or a wife, the forbidden questions that Nietzsche encourages us to ask change. So when you're 19, the forbidden questions are something like, you know, they're questions about sexuality or questions about your intelligence or questions about friendships. But as you get older, the forbidden questions change. And if you're honest about how you feel about parenting, if you're honest about how you feel about marriage, I don't always think that these are stress-free situations. And Nietzsche says, look at them with clear eyes. At the beginning of the Antichrist, he says, look me straight in the face. And I think that that's what Nietzsche is asking us to do with the relationships that we have. So this second trip, did I oftentimes want to abandon both my wife and my child on that second trip? Honestly, the answer is yes. Did I oftentimes think that they would be better off if I did? The answer is yes. Now, do I think that that's actually what many, many people, many, many listeners um, also feel in their quiet moments? I think, again, the answer is yes. I think it depends on how honest we want to be with ourselves. You write about your wife, uh, who is a, a Kantian scholar, who, who has very little time for Nietzsche. How has that played out between the two of you? And, and do you harbor a, a sort of a Nietzschean scorn for Kant yourself? <laughs> That's a great question. So in the history of Western philosophy, there could not be two more diametrically opposed thinkers than Kant and Nietzsche. Nietzsche called Kant a catastrophic spider. And I'm sure that Kant would have called Nietzsche a total idiot, which is sometimes uh, what Carol and I end up calling each other. What I think over the course of our relationship, however, has become clear is that you need to actually wed the rational or what Nietzsche called the Apollonian with the Dionysian, which he thought of as the passional or instinctual nature. And I think that a balance between those two is an ideal. And I think an ideal that we try to strike in our relationship and an ideal that, frankly, I think a correct reading of Nietzsche says that we should strike in life. But your, your descriptions in the book of family life, your relationship with your wife and the, the, the lovely moments that you have with your daughter, 
this is all a world away from anything that Nietzsche experienced or wrote about, isn't it? I mean, intimate relationships really weren't his strong suit. He, he never had children. When you reflect on this aspect of your life, the, the, the family man aspect, or when you engage with it philosophically, is there a sense in which this is where you leave Nietzsche behind? Yes. Um, so Nietzsche desperately craved this type of intimacy. Um, and he, in fact, he wanted it with a very famous woman named Lou Salome, but it didn't work out. Um, Lou saw in Nietzsche something very destructive and she decided not to engage in a intimate relationship with him. Your question though, is right on point primarily because this story hiking with Nietzsche is in part a story about hiking beyond Nietzsche. Nietzsche often says that we need to be Hyperboreans. Hyperboreans were these sort of titanic monsters who lived at the top of high mountains. And Nietzsche often encourages us to go there all by ourselves to the top of mountains. And when I was 19, I thought that was the only way to live. But when I was 37, now that I'm 39, I think that one of the tasks of life is to see the absolute beauty in the most mundane or intimate affairs. You know, watching my daughter, six-year-old daughter, play on a pasture, play on a hillside. This is not what Nietzsche envisioned as the apex of life. But I think that sometimes that's what we as human beings need most, is to actually realize that there's some sort of beauty or the sublime in the mundane. And I guess this is partly what you mean when you talk about how becoming a father has changed the way that you approach philosophy. But what about being the son of an absent father? Because this is one of many parallels in your book between yourself and Nietzsche. Uh, Nietzsche's father died when he was four. Your father left the family when you were four years old. Is that just biographical coincidence or does it give rise to a, a deeper sense of identification there? I think, oh, it's, a, it's definitely a deeper sense of identification. And I also think, honestly, that I've been drawn to the fathers of philosophy because I desperately wanted to have some man explain life to me. And I think that Nietzsche was drawn to philosophy for much the same reason. At first, it was a way of compensating for something I had, you know, lost. Um, and I think Nietzsche definitely has that sense as well. I think in the course of the book, I'm also coming to terms with the fact that I very much hated my father. I didn't have a model for what a father should be. He drank too much. He was what old people would call free with his hands. And I was coming to terms with that and still am. And also coming to terms with the fact that I am very much in many ways my father. And those are hard realizations, uh, but also the realizations that I think Nietzsche would want us to come to. On RN, you're listening to The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. And my guest is John Cagg, author of Hiking with Nietzsche, a wonderful philosophical memoir that explores the peaks and valleys of, as Nietzsche famously put it, becoming who you are. Well, John, I want to ask you about food and, and eating, because one of my favourite passages in Nietzsche's work comes in um, Ece Homo, where he says... Here are some notes on my morality, and then what follows is this obsessively detailed list of eating and drinking protocols. No meals between meals, no coffee, tea is okay, but you need to drink it very strong, and, and so on and so forth. And I always find that passage slightly 
well, very funny, as Nietzsche often is very funny, but also quite opaque. I mean, what do you think is going on there? Why do you think he, he calls this sort of thing his morality? Well, Nietzsche was very much interested in the relationship between food and bodily functions and thought. For Nietzsche, there's no hard and fast distinction between our higher, more sophisticated modes of intellectual life and these lower instinctual bodily forms of life. He was trying to erase that type of longstanding distinction, probably established um, in the classical era, but then um, reinstantiated with Descartes, for example, the mind-body dualism. Nietzsche's trying to get us over that. So that's one thought. Another thought is that he was an absolute mess when it came to his stomach for long stretches of his life. He said, if only I could master my stomach. And he was interested in trying to get control over his, his entire life, which involves getting control over your bodily functions, over what goes in and what goes out of your body. And I would say that he was a compulsive when it comes to uh, eating. Uh, he wasn't an anorexic necessarily. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't a big faster, but he did experiment with fasting and with extreme eating, what, what we would think of today as extreme dieting. He was also interested in the way, the relationship between self-control and transcendence and sort of standard uh, ways of thinking through fasting and transcendence. When I went, uh, when I was 19, I was equally obsessed about my eating habits um, and became even more so while I was there. And so for those nine weeks, I lost 22 pounds. That's one of the stupider things I've ever done in life and contracted a very serious eating disorder that I still deal with today. Um, and part of the story, part of this book, um, one of the underlying or quiet threads throughout it is that story. Nietzsche didn't have what we would call today an eating disorder, but he was absolutely obsessed with measuring, controlling the food that he uh, ingested. Um, so uh, that's not the easiest thing to say uh, to an international audience, but I guess I wrote the book, so there it is. Sure. But what interests me here is this word morality, which Nietzsche uses to describe his own dietary regimen, and and I guess more broadly, his maybe he, he would use it to describe his um, his relation to diet and and digestion and this rather obsessive thing that he has. How about for you? I mean, do you see your own your own issues with food as in some way bound up with the same kind of morality that Nietzsche's talking about? I mean, his comment that uh, this regimen, this eating regimen, is his morality is a sort of what philosophers call a deflationary move. A, what he's saying is, is that morality, oftentimes taken as the most glistening and highfalutin sort of uh, system, is rooted in our most basic bodily functions, is rooted in the fact that we are animals. I don't necessarily take the same exact deflationary move that Nietzsche does, but what I will say is that eating, obsessive eating, dieting, eating disorders are a way of getting yourself under control. We call it disordered eating, but that's really a misnomer. It's not disordered at all. It's very ordered. It's hyper ordered. And this type of order is also the basis of morality. In other words, getting yourself under control. 
That is the most basic idea of any ethical system. And I think that that is what Nietzsche is pushing on in that passage, David. I'd like to turn to decadence at this point and maybe get into it by just asking you, what does Nietzsche mean when he invokes decadence? What's he, what's he talking about? So decadence is oftentimes thought of just as signs of great wealth or great surplus. But Nietzsche suspects that decadence, that those signs of great wealth or great surplus are signs of underlying decay. And so when he talked about his culture being susceptible to decadence or reflecting decadence, he is suggesting that there's been this sort of moral, aesthetic, cultural decay. And I think if he were to look at our culture today, he would probably see something even, you know, even worse than his own. One issue that Nietzsche is facing is he also says, I am a decadent. And that was true. Nietzsche never worked, at least not in terms of um, manual labor. He lived for the most of his life, a sort of um, life of the mind. And he knew that he was complicit in this very easy way of life, this decadence. And he was worried about the sort of moral decline or moral decay that accompanies that, that ease, that convenience of life. So as, a, as yourself, as a professor of philosophy, how, how does this make you reflect on academic life? Because Nietzsche had little time for institutionalized scholarship. What do you think he would have made and, and what do you make of the culture of safe spaces and trigger warnings and no platforming that, that's becoming a or appears to be becoming a salient feature of American academia? Is this a species of decadence? That's a great question. Um let me go at it two ways. The first way is that uh, Nietzsche li- leaves Basel, where he was the youngest tenured professor in philology at the university. And on his way out, he calls it a dog kennel. What he means is a type of partitioned system of confinement and control. And in fact, I think disciplinary philosophy is very much like a dog kennel still today. I think that the way that we do peer-reviewed journals, I think that the way that most of us publish, I think the way that most of us teach, um, at least at the graduate level, have the function of control and probably the perpetuation of very narrow norms, dog kennel style. I think that when it comes to trigger warnings, however, Nietzsche might have a second sort of response, which is this. Yes, today, some intellectuals have said that we live in a time of um, oversensitivity. But I think what Nietzsche would suggest is that we are to actually go after the centers of power. In other words, we should be critical of the centers of power. He said, I usually attack only those who have been lauded or who have already achieved success. He doesn't go after people who are necessarily being oppressed. He punches up. He punches up. Nietzsche is a classic one to punch up. Now, I think what he says about slave morality might seem to go against that. For example, he has no time for slave morality. Um, Slave morality being a sort of Christian ascetic practice that says that we sacrifice this life for some hereafter. That being said, he punches directly at the priest, the person in power. 
Uh, so always punch up. I think that's the sort of Nietzschean motto. And how do you resist decadence at a time when passive consumerism and, and ressentiment, you know, the, the claiming of victim status, it seems to be so deeply sedimented into our culture today in the West. Is the best way to deal with this just to, to escape it from time to time, to just get out into the wilderness, go hiking? That's, I mean, that was one of the motivations, um, both for Nietzsche to go to Sils Maria, but also for me to go to Sils Maria, to just walk away or to also use our legs. What sort of strength does it require to carry your own weight? Can you actually carry yourself? Our decadent lifestyles don't necessarily require us to carry our own weight. And I think that getting out and just going for a walk is a nice respite from the decadence. Even if you don't go to the Alps, you can still go for a walk. I interviewed the uh, environmentalist Bill McKibben a few years ago, and he talked about how you can't go anywhere on earth now and not find the fruits of decadence. I mean, he didn't call it that, but his point was that you can go to the furthest reaches of the planet now and you will find microparticles of plastic and the temperature is not what it should be. And the idea that you can somehow transcend this comfortable but deeply nihilistic consumer society that's been created by by the last men, the idea that you can take yourself out of all that by heading for the wilderness becomes more and more difficult to sustain. Is that something that you have to deal with somehow? It's very interesting. I, I mean, I think that both Nietzsche and Henry David Thoreau lived at this moment, which Thoreau called the Anthropocene. It's a moment in which we no longer can separate what is truly wild from what is man-made. They have infiltrated each other and never again um, will we be able to go to some pristine wilderness, at least not in this world or not in this, uh, on this planet. I think Nietzsche was working through that. I think that his response is not that different from Thoreau when Thoreau says, in wildness, that is where the preservation of the world is. What he means by that is not, I don't think, to go to Patagonia and find some pristine landscape. What he means is there are still wild moments within us. There's some sort of undomesticated nature. And I think that Nietzsche and Thoreau are trying to push us to find that. And you can find that in all sorts of different situations. It doesn't have to be in Patagonia. It can be on the subway and you see a sort of wildness in the person sitting next to you. It can be the fact that when you watch a child, the child runs with the sort of freedom that, I don't know, adult life domesticates. And I think that we have to, for Nietzsche, we have to be very much aware of that. Um, that aspect of wildness in us that remains. So transcendence is, a, is an interior thing. That's right. And I mean, in moments of the book, I always thought that transcendence was when you reach the pinnacle of some mountain. But that's not the case. Sometimes it's an issue of going not higher, but deeper, deeper into experience, deeper into the affairs that we have in life, deeper into the people that we surround ourselves by, um, deeper into ourselves. And I think that seeing transcendence as um, an interior process, that was unique to the transcendentalists and something that Nietzsche picked up. And this takes us, well, brings us finally to the subtitle of your book, which references that wonderful Nietzschean aphorism, Become Who You Are. What does that mean to you at, at this point in your life? I'll be very honest. Um, and I both know and don't know. Um, so Nietzsche says... 
in order to become who you are, you must not have the slightest idea of who you are. And I think what he is suggesting there is oftentimes when we're young, we have a picture of what we want to become or who we want to become. We want to become doctors or lawyers or we want to get married or we want to become some person. We want to be somebody. And I think that as you get older and sometimes when you become that person who you've always envisioned, you realize that there's still something left, something left over, something missing. And I think that Nietzsche at, at the age of 40 or at the age of 50 is saying to us, maybe becoming what you are involves getting over who you think you should have become or who you think you should become. Um, maybe it is simply the process of becoming, the transition, the bending into the mountain, the turning into something else. Maybe it's the process that matters. And I think that that's one of the upshots of the book. It is the process, not the destination. And just to remind yourself again and again that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because so much of the uh, the modern uh, wellness industry, the happiness industry, it, it, it's really a lot of that is about finding your your authentic self, your once and for all authentic self. This is something quite different to that. It is. Uh, that's right. So, I mean, I think that becoming who you are, there is no, I mean, the who, there is no who out there that you should find at some distant, on some distant peak. And the are is not an enduring substance that you authentically are for all time. So becoming your authentic self, I think what you discover is that when you become that quote, authentic self, that too changes. I remember my mother saying to me, this too shall pass. I think that that is, a, a, in part, that's a very Nietzschean comment. This too shall pass. Heraclitus, the ancient philosopher, also said this. The pre-Socratic also said this. This too shall pass. And Nietzsche had a lot of time for Buddhism, of course. That's right. He, I mean, he also thought that it was, he, he both had a lot of time for Buddhism, but he also thought it was deeply pessimistic. Um, and I'm not, I'm, I'm more... Uh, I'm more open to that possibility or to those possibilities than I think Nietzsche was. I think Hermann Hesse, who emerges at the end of this book, at the end of Hiking with Nietzsche, was also more attuned to those possibilities. But yeah, uh, I think that this is a very Buddhist way of reading Nietzsche. Well, John Cag, you're a professor of philosophy at UMass Lowell. You're the author of Hiking with Nietzsche. And uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. You've been a great guest on the program. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, David. And we'll put publication details for Hiking with Nietzsche on our website. It is a great read. I highly recommend it. And just before we go, if you or anyone you know is experiencing an eating disorder or body image concerns, then you can chat to the Butterfly Foundation helpline on 1800 334 673 or visit their website. We'll put a link on our website. Just go to ABCRN and look for the Philosopher's Zone on the program menu. And that's it for this week. Thanks to producer Diane Dean and thank you for your company. I'm David Rutledge. I'll see you next time. Bye for now.